All right, it's still me, just different microphone. Uh, it's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, we are continuing to, to pray for Craig and Kathy and their family as they enjoy a season of rest. And it's been a long time for him since he's taken a season of rest, so we're really proud of him. Uh, we, we do pray that he gets a maximum enjoyment out of that time and with his family and loved ones. And uh, I do encourage you, as we've been encouraging you, to continue to pray for him, to visit him, call him, send him a note, let him know that you're thinking about him. It's a really tangible way, I think, that we can be a blessing to our pastor. He works hard. Uh, there's, there's a lot of work that goes into uh, a Sunday service that you don't necessarily see. And there's more than that. There's, there's so much ministry that happens uh, through Redeemer. And so we're thankful for you being a part of that ministry, and we're thankful for Craig uh, as he is really the, the front man of so much that we do and, and see. So, I'm curious this morning, uh, as we, we turn our attention to God's Word, first, a little bit of soccer talk. How many of you all uh, watch the Women's World Cup at all? Like, just a, a portion of the, the tournament? Okay, actually pretty good. I think we'd asked that question like eight years ago. That would have not been the same case. Well, as you probably know, the Women's World Cup national team uh, is ranked number one. And they just won their fourth World Cup last Sunday. It's more than any other women's soccer team in the world. So people are, are obviously very excited about them. As you've probably also heard, uh, that, that win um, also came with it uh, a lawsuit. And so there's a lawsuit out there filed uh, by the women's team. It's a gender discrimination lawsuit uh, against the U.S. Soccer Federation stating that the women are paid far less per game than the men's national team despite the men's national team winning zero World Cups and the women's national team now winning four. So according to an op-ed in The Atlantic uh, this week, and I quote, there is only one appropriate reward for the U.S. women's national team upon their return home as the winners of back-to-back -back World Cup championships, equal pay. If the U.S. Soccer Federation wants to win another, it has to stop underpaying its banner team. Now, I'm not going to wade any more into that debate, any more than I probably already have, but I, what I find interesting about that topic of equal pay and reward is that it highlights for us this universal desire to be rewarded in life. It's why 80% of shoppers prefer a rewards program where they shop. It's why a like on Facebook triggers a dopamine release in the brain. And it's why 83% of credit card holders prefer a cashback perk to their card. And it's why the U.S. women's national team is suing for equal pay. We all want to be rewarded for our time, our work, our energy, and our efforts. No matter how small the reward itself, we just want to know that we're being rewarded. And so, because of that universal and innate desire, we've all learned, and we're very good at it, uh, we've learned to make decisions, to spend time with people, to accumulate possessions, and pursue activities that promise a reward or a repayment in our life. For followers of Jesus, there's also a promise of reward and repayment. But these are far better rewards and repayments than equal pay or a cashback offer on a credit card could ever offer. But our preference, our innate preference for temporary and immediate results and rewards tends to prevent us from pursuing these eternal rewards and future rewards offered by Jesus in the gospel. And so the call on our lives as believers this morning, as we'll see in this passage, is to look at a far greater reward that Jesus promises to those who trust in him. So 
Let's look at a parable together on that topic. It's in Luke chapter 14, which in your pew Bibles is on page 874. When you find your place in your Bible or your pew Bible, uh, please stand with me and we'll read together from God's Word. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 12. He also, Jesus, said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out then to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet, and it's a light to our path. And so I pray this morning that we would consider it so. Uh, We'd turn aside from worthless things. Uh, We'd consider your precepts true, and that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, to begin with this parable, we're going to get just a little bit of context. Uh, Since we started in the middle of a chapter, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what we just saw uh, in a minute, and we'll walk through some of the the details of the passage itself. So, look with me, uh, flip back in your Bible for just one moment to verse 1 in chapter 14. It says, One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So the story uh, before us begins on a Saturday. It's the Jewish Sabbath, and it's a day of rest. And Jesus has apparently been invited to dinner uh, at the house of a Pharisee. And these were, of course, the most ambitious keepers of the law of their day. And I think that Luke, the writer of this gospel that we're in, he uses a bit of irony when he says that the Pharisees were watching Jesus carefully. So as we'll see in the following text, Jesus is the one doing the watching. But... This isn't the kind of watching that maybe you and I might do if we were to show up to a dinner party. He's not watching for how people are dressed. He's not watching for a friend to arrive so he can have somebody to talk to. And he's not watching and making judgments about who's worth meeting and trying to angle to meet them. He's watching for what people love and what people value in their lives. He's watching for things of eternal significance. And because of that, when Jesus speaks, he speaks in a way that undresses pride and unsettles those around him. It's not unloving for Jesus to speak the truth about somebody's spiritual condition, 
although it does sound like a foreign concept at times, even to those of us who follow him today. So having already told one parable uh, to the dinner guests in verses 7 through 11, Jesus now turns his attention to his host in verses 12 to 14. So he says to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors, because they'll invite you in return and you'll be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So it's kind of easy to see when you, when you hear things like that from Jesus. It's easy to see why he wasn't probably invited often as a reoccurring guest at dinner parties. Jesus is telling his host, who invited him, how to invite people to dinner. And so he gives this host a lesson on hospitality. And apparently this, uh, this Sabbath dinner is full of the host's family and uh, relatives, and it says in particular his rich neighbors, and probably other worthwhile social connections for them to have. And so again, Jesus, watching carefully, has figured out that the purpose of this dinner is not hospitality from the host, but hubris. It's not for giving people rest on a day of rest, but it's looking for reward. And it's not for reaching out, but it's for reaching in. So perhaps the host is thinking something kind of like this as he throws this party. He's thinking, if I invite Rabbi Judah, uh, maybe he'll be more inclined to vote for my chief justice of the Sanhedrin campaign next year. And maybe if I invite Councilman Tevia, he'll pass that no-goat ordinance that we've been talking about in our neighborhood for so long. And maybe my so-called friend Simeon will finally take me out on a lake, on the lake on his new fishing boat that he bought. So whatever the host was thinking, I don't know that could be in his mind or not, whatever he was thinking when he organized the party and invited the guests, he clearly had some kind of social or political or financial benefit in mind uh, with those invitations. Maybe he even thought that Jesus himself could provide some kind of future blessing or opportunity uh, for the invitation. But Jesus takes that concept and turns it upside down, and he tells the man, you should have invited the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind instead of those people. And in other words, he should have thought to invite the last people that you would think to invite to a dinner party. So can you imagine, just for a moment, how difficult it would be to invite this group of people to host a dinner for the poor, crippled, lame, and blind? These are groups of people who probably can't even get to your dinner party without a great degree of effort on your part. And Jesus is saying that having those people at your dinner party will be a blessing somehow. And yet, that's exactly what he tells his host in verse 14. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid. They cannot repay you, but you will be repaid. So in verse 15, one of those who, who reclined at the dinner table uh, around them heard these things, and it says, he said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, this is kind of, a, kind of an out-of-left-field comment, I think. And uh, two possibilities in my mind exist for, for this man. We don't know who he is uh, saying this. One is that he's possibly just trying to fill up the, the awkward verbal space that Jesus just created by telling his host who to invite to dinner. And that's possible. Or two, and I think this is maybe a little bit more likely, is that this man has some selective hearing. Just like we all do when we hear Jesus say difficult things in our midst. And so he latches on to this phrase that Jesus says, the resurrection of the just. And that cues something in his mind, and he essentially thinks, oh yeah, well, we righteous Jews all look forward to that day when we'll experience the blessing of feasting in God's kingdom. 
In fact, I kind of like dinner parties like this because this is like a little piece of what I think heaven is going to be like for me, all these people that look the same as me. So Jesus, at this point, knowing that nobody's really listening to what he had just told the host, the first time he said it, repeats what he told the host. And that's where we get this parable in verses 16, uh, in verses 16 to 24. So it starts out, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So a banquet like this one um, would, have, would have been preceded by two invitations. The first invitation you can kind of think of is like the RSVP that went out in the mail. This, this would have gone out long before the banquet uh, was actually going to occur. Let everybody know, reserve your schedule, respond s'il vous plaît, and come to my dinner party. And then once all the preparations were made and the food was ready, a second invitation would go out letting the guests know that it's time for them to come to the dinner. And so that second invitation is what we see in this parable. That's what the, the servant is doing uh, in verse 17. He's going around the city, he's finding all the, the invited guests, and he's telling them, the banquet that you received an invitation for is now ready, come on in. So these guests, who had already been invited and would have RSVP'd to the original invitation, now, at this moment, begin to make some excuses. So, of course, this was incredibly rude and insulting to the host. Planning a banquet is expensive, and it's a lot of hard work. But the guests apparently have their reasons. So, for the sake of remembering these characters and not just calling them Man 1, Man 2, and Man 3, I'm going to give them some names this morning. I think this will help us all out. Uh, we're going to name them Mr. Priority, Mr. Preoccupied, and Mr. Passive Indifference. So, let's, let's look at each of these guys. First of all, in verse 18... Mr. Priority. So he says that he just bought a field and is, is going out. He must go out and see it. So the way that he communicates this to the, the servant who's inviting him to the dinner party is kind of interesting. He says he must go out and see it. As if he was afraid that if he didn't go out and see it, the field was just going to run away and he wouldn't be able to see it anymore. So it was, it was pretty common practice in Jesus' day for a, a, a purchaser of a field to inspect the field both before he bought it and after he bought it. So he's already seen the field, and it's not as if the field has changed in any way. Uh, so he doesn't need to somehow make any decisions about it or, or go and make, um, make an extra effort to see it. But behind that excuse, I think Mr. Priority here is showing his love for his property and seeing his estate grow. So maybe, maybe he just wants to go out to the new field and see it and daydream about what he's going to do on it and all the growth that he's going to see on the field. Or uh, maybe he has some, some big plans that he wants to uh, go measure out, a building that he's going to build or something like that. But whatever it is for Mr. Priority, there's a promise of reward in his mind. And that promise of reward in seeing the field is somehow greater than the promise of reward by going to the banquet this evening. So he makes his excuse to the servant, and he says, please have me excused. At least he's polite about it, I think. All right, that's Mr. Priority. Mr. Preoccupied is our second man in the story. And in verse 19, he says he's on his way to examine some oxen that he bought. Other translations uh, might say that he's on his way to try out the oxen. That gives you a little better idea. He's a fairly wealthy man. Uh, most, most normal farmers in the day would have owned one or two oxen at most, one or two yoke of oxen at most. And Mr. Preoccupied purchased five, so he's doing pretty well. In the same way as the, the first man, Mr. Priority, he also would have had previous knowledge of these oxen, and he would have seen them long before the transaction occurred. So perhaps for him, 
It's the allure of going out to try out these oxen just, just to make sure they work all right, the way that they're supposed to. Or maybe he wants to go out to the field with this, uh, this new yoke of oxen and put a few extra hours of work in to get ahead. Or maybe he wants to see his productivity increase as he plows the field with more oxen than ever before. Whatever his core reasoning, there is for him also a reward in his mind that is greater than going to the banquet. And so he also asks politely to be excused. Finally, in this parable, we see Mr. Passive Indifference. And he's in verse 20. So his excuse is kind of interesting. He tells the servant, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Anybody ever used that excuse before? It sounds like just such an undeniable reason for not going to a party. How are you going to argue with this man? He's married a wife. But like all excuses, there's kind of a subtlety to this one. It's true that in the Old Testament, there was a law, there was a provision in the law to allow a man to be excused from going to war during his first year of marriage so that he could be with his wife. Uh, but this excuse didn't, didn't uh, pre- this law did not preclude him from going to feasts and just being a part of the community during his first year of marriage. So Mr. Passive Indifference pretends that he cannot, says that he cannot, when really it's just a matter of not wanting to. So he uses his marriage as a cover. He said he couldn't go, uh, I'm sorry, he, he reminds me kind of of the student that I once tried to convince uh, to go to a, a ministry conference with me. And as I, I pressed him for some reasons why he didn't want to go, he kept telling me that he didn't, uh, his reason came back, something better might come up. And so I asked the student again, what if, what if something better doesn't come up? What, what would you do? Well, at least I had the option, he said. So I think, I think the reward in Mr. Passive Indifference's mind is the ability to maintain his freedom, kind of like this student was saying to me, keeping his options open. And so Mr. Passive Indifference just doesn't really care Uh, He'd rather just be free floating with his life. So, like all of parables, all of the parables of Jesus, we come to this moment of tension, kind of this highest moment of of the problem that we're going to see in the parable. And we have to ask, okay, what's going to happen next? So we see the master's reaction to these excuses in verses 21 and 24. Look, Look with me at those again. It says, The servant came and reported these things to his master, and then the master of the house became angry. And in verse 24, he says, None of these men, then, who were invited shall taste my banquet. As we so often see in the parables, there's a strong reaction uh, to the characters who are in the story. Usually the strong reaction is from somebody who's in charge, like a master or an owner in the story. And at first glance, I think to our our Western sensibilities, these strong reactions can seem kind of like overreactions. And so here we, we read this parable, and we might think, What's the big deal? The man threw a banquet, a few people didn't respond, uh, didn't show up to his party, and he'll just throw, um, he'll just have some leftovers uh, tomorrow. But it is a big deal. As, as we already explored, these men would have RSVP'd, and so it was rude uh, for them to reject the master's invitation uh, to the banquet so late in the game. And keep in mind, there is no postponing this banquet. You cannot set this banquet aside for another day just to wait on the convenient time for all of these guests. All the food's going to spoil, and there's been a lot of work that's gone into it to prepare for it, this perfect moment. And so, the lesson of the parable at the end is that those who were invited originally do not automatically receive the blessings of the banquet. 
They had to respond to the summons. They had to respond to the invitation in the moment that it arrived in order for them to participate. And the way that they responded, the way that they made excuses about the second invitation to that specific call in their life showed the master what they really believed about his banquet and what was valuable and what was worth their time and their effort. So I'm going to talk to the kids for just a moment, kind of get them looped into this story. So kids, if y'all are in here, I see a few of you out here. All right, I'm going to put you into this story for a moment. How many of you, if you, if you woke up, let's imagine for a moment that you wake up tomorrow morning, kids, and your mommies and daddies say, all right, we're going to have a really big dinner tonight, and it's going to be full of your favorite foods, like probably mac and cheese and hot dogs and, and stuff like that. And it's, it's going to be the best dinner you've ever had, all right? So you're waking up, it's in the morning, and your, your parents tell you you're going to have mac and cheese and hot dogs for dinner tonight. It's the best mac and cheese you've ever had, believe me. And, and so all day long, you're looking forward to this dinner, and you tell your parents, really looking forward to dinner tonight, really looking forward to dinner tonight, can't wait for that amazing mac and cheese and hot dog meal that we're going to have. And then comes dinner time, 5 o'clock, since most of you go to bed at like 7. So it's, it's dinner time, and your, your moms and dads, they, they call you and they say, okay, kids, it's time for dinner. This, this is the moment. Come to the dinner table. And then you tell them in that moment, I think I'm going to go play with my toys instead. What, what would your parents do if you told them when it's dinner time that you're going to go play with your toys instead? Would they believe you that you were excited about that dinner in the first place? No. Would you get to enjoy dinner if you didn't come to the dinner table to eat when they invited you? No. You'd probably go to bed at 7 and you'd go to bed hungry. It's the same thing for these guests in that story, okay? The guests invited the banquet, but they, refused, they, they were invited to the banquet and they anticipated it, but they refused the actual invitation when it came. And this refusal showed them, showed the master what they really believed was, was rewarding in their life and what was really worthwhile. For kids, maybe it's, it's more worthwhile to play with your toys than it is to come get the mac and cheese and hot dog dinner. For these guests... There was something about their other activities that they believed provided them greater reward for their time, their energy, and their resources than going to this banquet. So what does the host do? Instead of hosting an empty banquet, he's gone to all the trouble to host it and prepare for it. The master tells his servant, go out to the streets, the lanes, the highways, and the hedges. These are the places for the outcast, for the last, the lost, and the least of society. Go to those places and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So the master's goal with this banquet is to not seek repayment from his guests, as the Pharisees were doing, but for his house to be filled, to be a blessing to as many people as possible. And so perhaps this uh, second group of people, maybe they, they had heard about the banquet originally, but they lacked influence or didn't feel that they were worthy to attend or didn't have the resources or the ability to attend. So the servant went out, and it says he compelled them. He was insistent in his hospitality to get them to come and enjoy the generosity of his master. So here's the main idea. I'm going to wrap all of this up into a couple of main thoughts. Uh, Jesus starts out where, where we started out in verse 12. He starts out telling his host that his host is seeking to be rewarded by inviting only his friends, his family, and his rich neighbors to dinner. And he's saying host, there's an even better reward. There's a bigger spiritual re reward that's available 
but it requires something of you. It requires being downwardly mobile with your social engagements and being willing to be inconvenienced at your dinner. And the parable that Jesus tells then makes the exact same point. Only this time, we get this broader context for the Jewish Pharisees of the day. They gave lip service to this idea of a heavenly banquet, and they ultimately refused or rejected the invitation that came. They preferred the temporary political reward and power reward of their kingdom dinner parties to the spiritual reward of the Messiah's kingdom and banquet. And so just like the dinner invitation in the parable went out to the streets and the countryside, so too did the gospel invitation in Jesus' day turn outward to the Gentiles of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So... We come to the end of that passage, and it might be just kind of tempting to tie a little bow on that. Uh, We might feel really glad and celebrate that we as Gentile believers were invited to the banquet. The gospel went out, and and we get it now. So silly Pharisees, they're, they're always so blind and crippled in their thinking about where the true reward comes from. But this parable, as with any parable and any text of Scripture, is not just for the religious leaders of Jesus' day, is it? It's for the religious and for the irreligious of all days, including ours this morning. And so the question for us today at Redeemer, I think, is this. How do we discern if we are living for lesser rewards or for the superiority of the final eternal reward? Or to say it another way, how do we become increasingly clear-sighted in our lives about the reward that we desire most be it a temporary reward or an eternal reward. All right, so I'm going to answer those questions. I'm going to ask three questions to help us answer those questions, all right? And this is our application. So how does, how does the Lord want us to consider ourselves as part of this text this morning? Uh, first, I think that when it comes to our spiritual lives, we have to ask how many of our excuses sound like this. So from the parable we read, we saw three men with three slightly different-sounding excuses. Again, there was Mr. Priority, there was Mr. Preoccupied, and Mr. Passive Indifference. And I think it's likely that when it comes to our spiritual lives and the activities of the church, we all tend to give excuses that fall into one of those three categories. And again, why does it matter what kind of excuses we make for things? Because our excuses reveal our treasure. Our excuses reveal where we're looking for the greatest possible reward in our lives in that moment. And so when it comes to our time spent growing in the Lord, or our interest in meeting with other believers, or our participation in Sunday worship itself, if you listen carefully for those excuses in your own lives, they expose the reward that we desire most. So let's take Mr. Priority just as a a very specific example of this. He tells the servant that he must go and see his field. And we know that he didn't have to see his field that day, but he made it sound really, really important by using that word must. And we often use the same exact language, don't we? Even with each other, with our excuses in our spiritual lives. Say, well, I have to so-and-so. I have to work late. Please have me excused. I have to get the kids to practice. Please have me excused. I have to be at the football game all weekend. Now, I'm not trying to give us a complex, a language complex, about the way that we talk, but I am eager for us, as a church, 
to be honest about our spiritual life excuses with ourselves and with one another. So what do you do when you find a spiritual life excuse? It's the same, same lesson as the parable, really. Uh, you take the temporary reward, reward that you are looking for, and you replace it with the promise of a better reward. So into all of those have-tos of our life that we so often tell ourselves and so often tell each other, I think Luke tells us a few things. Uh, one in Luke 10 and one in Hebrews 11. In Luke 10, uh, Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha. And Mary is uh, sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha is busy serving Jesus when he comes in. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about a great many things, but one thing is necessary, namely, being with Jesus himself. And from Hebrews 11, this, this one says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So one thing is necessary, and Jesus rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so starting, starting to come to this, this moment in our lives where we're able to be honest about what our excuses point to, what our spiritual life excuses point to, helps us identify the reward structure in our own lives and to point each other toward a greater reward, namely the one thing that is necessary and the greater reward of seeking Jesus. All right, so that's, that's the first area I think Jesus calls us to from this text. The second area is when it comes to our social engagements, how many of our meals look like this? So how many of our excuses look like this? How many of our meals look like this? As we, as we often see in Luke's gospel, there's, there are three different kinds of people that Jesus is often reaching out to. The least, the lost, and the last. And the, the main idea here is that those who follow Jesus do so in a dirty world full of hunger and disease and prejudice and spiritual darkness. And so how many of your meals, how many of your dinner engagements and social engagements are spent with these kinds of people? Twice in our text this morning, we saw that there was a call to the host uh, for the banquet to not invite only those who could repay him in generosity, but probably to invite those who would probably never repay us. And in fact, they, these kinds of people, if we invite them to our, our dinners, may exhaust us to the very core of who we are because of all the work required to host them. By contrast, the Pharisees' dinners were governed by their hope for temporary reward and earthly repayment only. And so the danger in using our social engagements for only the lesser rewards in life is not that the lesser rewards in life are inherently bad. Status and comfort and close friends, those are all good things. But the danger, according to Jesus, is that using these times to benefit only ourselves and not to meet the needs of the least and the lost and the last around us shows us that we have a Pharisee-like heart and not one that has been transformed by the mercy of Jesus. So how many of your meals look like this? Or another question to ask would be, is Jesus a better reward than our social comforts and even our preferences for an easy Christian life? To quote John Piper on this topic, he says, Man is at his worst when it's a religious man who uses his religion to protect himself from the inconvenience and disturbance of needy strangers. And he goes on to say, If your hope is firmly fixed on the superiority of the final heavenly reward over the brief earthly 
reward of human recompense, then you will have the power and freedom to invite unsavory people with real needs to your dinner. So not only that, not only do we look to a heavenly reward uh, when we invite unsavory people to dinner, but Jesus even promises in this text, you will be blessed. So just when we get ready for some self-sacrifice and some real duty and inviting unsavory people to dinner, Jesus says, and you'll be blessed now. There's a, there's a promise that comes with the invitation. And just, just by way of, of uh, example or to, to give you some ideas of where to go to get some ideas about this, I'm so proud of our, our North Charleston community group for really being a great example of looking to the least and lost and the last uh, in their dinner and in their social engagements. And many of you are doing the exact same thing, and I'm, I'm so excited for you. I just don't know the, the precise stories. So when you're doing that, you know that the blessing is real. You know that it's true. And you know that, that there is more reward than just being rewarded in, in your social uh, recompense. Um, and so we're proud of you for doing those kinds of things. Share those stories with one another so that we can learn what the blessing feels like and looks like in our lives as well. And so finally, when it comes to your understanding of the banquet, here's our last question. Uh, we asked, what, um, what do your excuses sound like? Uh, what do your meals look like? And then finally, when it comes to your understanding of the banquet, how generous is the invitation in your mind? So the, the Pharisees at the dinner and the men in the parable, they stand in stark contrast to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame in the parable. One group, the Pharisees, gave intellectual assent to the idea of going to the banquet. They RSVP'd, and they looked forward to the day when they would eat bread in the kingdom of God, or at least their version of it. And yet, when it came to the actual offer to attend Jesus' generous banquet, they turned it down. And the ridiculousness of their refusal only highlights Jesus' point here. Nobody would turn down such a generous banquet opportunity unless they didn't think it was so generous in the first place. So there's a dangerous attitude, I think, in the self-righteous heart, in the Pharisee-like heart that says, of course I'll get to attend the banquet. Why wouldn't I get to attend the banquet? I believe all the right things, and I do all the right things, and I'm certainly not like all those people over there who don't believe the right things and don't do the right things. And so believing the right things and doing the right things, even inside of a PCA church, can become their own version of the temporary and lesser reward. By contrast, God's mercy, through Jesus, goes out to those who were surprised to have a banquet invitation in the first place. And they couldn't get there except by the generosity of somebody else. And so your, does your hope, does your only hope at the real core of who you are, and only you can answer that, I don't know the real core of who you are, but does your hope at the core of you depend on this kind of understanding of the gospel? Does the banquet invitation seem so ridiculously generous to you that it would be ridiculous for you to turn it down? And if the offer of God's generous banquet doesn't seem ridiculously generous to you right now, and maybe there's a little corner in your heart that thinks, I think some of the temporary lesser rewards are some of the things I'd rather have, actually. If you think that, if you find yourself in that moment in the honesty of your heart, then there's good news. And the good news is this. 
God has two responses to our sin, judgment and kindness. So in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus does judgment and kindness to the heart like this, to the self-righteous Pharisee-like heart. And he says, For you say, I'm rich, and I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to, come in to him and eat with him Give him a banquet, and he with me. So this does not matter if you find yourself more as the irreligious or the hypermoral hypocrite in this moment. What God leads us to in our sin is repentance, which means that I have a profound change of mind and change of heart so that I'm sorry for how I treated God, and I'm sorry for how I treated other people. And so God invites us to turn from our sin and the lesser reward structures in our lives and to follow him toward blessing and toward an eternal, generous banquet for those of us who believe. Let's pray. So, Father, in this moment, we want to do just that. We want to find these lesser rewards in our hearts, whether we see them in the spiritual excuses that we make or the kinds of meals uh, that we only want for ourselves, or the lack of generosity that we see coming from you in your banquet, because we think that, of course, we'll get to the banquet. So, Father, help us in this moment as a church. I'm I'm eager for us as a church to uh, know these things about ourselves, um, to turn from these ways to really repent and believe the gospel, uh, because through that, Lord, I know that our lives will be blessed and changed, and we will turn and tell others, Lord, there, there will be a turning uh, to the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth kind of response in our hearts when we really get your generosity and we really get the eternal reward and how great it is in our lives. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity to respond to it. Pray that it would not be a Sunday morning response, but a Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday for the rest of our lives response to these truths. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.